Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for ultimate reality, meaning and destiny. This message is about the very source of reality, the very reason for which all things consist and exist. The source of reality is an ultimate perfection and manifestation of love that is the very source of love, the one true eternal God. For those of you that are new, I want to direct you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where you will find a flip book that you can go through where there is print highlighted in red, which are all links to very profound and amazing YouTube videos that highly confirm for many fields of science and archaeology the reality of what I am sharing about here. These messages are for those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal. And I love to briefly define that for those who are new. Love. God is love. Now that word, God is love, in the Greek is agape, the highest form of love. Then there's below that the filial love, which is the feeling love, the love that you experience in your soul for someone. And then below that is the eros love. But the highest form of love is agape love, a love that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice because any lesser choice as such would have a measure of corruption in it. This love is so pure and so integral that it is, as it were, a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love, this love that always chooses the highest lasting good. This is the holiness of God or the holiness of his being of love. It is the defensive aspect of the being of love. Love cannot condone what is contrary to love, or it would be no longer love. It would be corrupted. This love is also so great that from the infinite past there was always the quality in the being of God to take judgment upon himself as a perfect atoning substitutionary sacrifice for his beings that he created with the capacity to love by creating them with their own free will as the source of their own action, not with some input from an outside source, like a robot. Only love is the highest form of fulfillment and of existence and of what is constructive, ever-enlarging and creative pleasures of fulfillment. And so I want to share with you that only such love, a love that is so integral that it will not condone what is contrary to love, but so ultimate and transcendent that it actually would take judgment upon himself for you. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever from their inner being believes with their life into him out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water, that they might be saved by believing with their life in this God who is the ultimate perfection of love. Only this love is ultimately trustworthy, to be worthy to be entrusted with unlimited authority, power, and life without using it in a corrupt way or being corrupted by it, thus indicative that he is the very source. Yes, God is so great that he can communicate on a little speck of a planet in the midst of his vast universe with his creation. It says that God humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens. And yes, in Genesis 18, you'll read about three angels standing 
a little distance beyond the tent door where Abraham was. He runs to them and tells them that he wants to make a wonderful meal for them, which he does, and they all partake of the food and talk with him. Well, one of those angels is addressed as Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God, basically meaning the ultimate reality, the source of reality, the I am that I am. And yes, God is that great that he could communicate with his creation. It's a very limited view of God if you think he's not that great. In fact, he was so great that in Jesus Christ, he came into this world and humbled himself to suffer more than you, a mere creature, to humble himself more than you, a mere creature on the cross, so that you could repent of your sins and be reconciled to God. And so this message is for those that have come to embrace the love of God, from which issues life, reality, all that is good. The only things that are not good are those choices from self-originating beings that have free will that obviously are in rebellion against the love of God. And therefore, we see all the consequences of suffering and we can easily be focused on that and the suffering in our own lives and say, God, why would you allow all this? No, it's not God. It is the consequences of bouncing off that ultimate reality or rebelling against that ultimate reality that results in those negative consequences. But here, God has loved us so much that we can repent and be forgiven and be assured of a destiny where there is no corruption, where there is no death, of creative pleasures of fellowship ever enlarging in your life in fellowship with God and his myriads of creations in heaven and all the vast multitudes of stars and planets and galaxies. What a wonderful hope there is for those that embrace this love. How could you reject a God that has loved you that much so that you can be forgiven and reconciled to God? And so I want to share with you how I share these messages briefly. But before I do all of that, I want, first of all, to have a beautiful worship song that we can sing together. And then after that, and every time I do this, I choose a different song from many, uh, well over a thousand songs. These are very new, unique and wonderful songs from throughout church history and a lot from the underground church in China through the work of Watchman Nee, who was martyred by the communists in China in 1972. So here's one of those songs. Let us worship in the, and worship this God of such amazing love with this song.
God's Spirit animating from the love of God that is shed abroad within us by His Spirit. There's nothing more wonderful than that. When you have that kind of a relationship with your Creator, of deep communion and fellowship, you can be in the greatest trial. You can be in the most difficult circumstances, like Paul the Apostle and them that were thrown into prison, shackles were put on them. And what, what happened? They were praising God and worshiping God in the midst of all that affliction. And an earthquake comes and the shackles fall off because of the earthquake. And all the prisoners are freed. And the guy that takes care of the prisoners is about to commit suicide because he thinks he's going to, I guess, be killed for not, for allowing them, for not being able to hold the prisoners. And falls on his knees and says to them, what must I do to be saved? And he saved in his whole household and all the prisoners turned to Christ. True story that happened with the Apostle Paul. The way I share these messages as I seek to speak is the oracles of God because it says in 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And as that is specifically applicable when we're gathered together as an assembly, that we should all be allowing the Spirit of God to rise up within us to speak those words that are not our own words but are coming from the Spirit of God. This is clearly understood from another verse in Revelations 19.10, which says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we worship God in spirit and in truth with great humility and reverence and love for God, we are filled with a spirit and an overflow beyond ourselves that can result in creative utterances that are coming from the Spirit of God beyond our own mere speech. And so today, as Christ said, the words I speak are spirit and life. I pray that the words that I speak are spirit and life and are coming out of a mindset of worship, that I will speak out of a consciousness of worship before God, when I do this message. And what I do to facilitate speaking prophetically or as the oracles of God is to choose two chapters by the casting of Lot before God. I don't do this lightly. I do it with great reverence. And if you do this in a light way, it will never work or if you're not right with God. But I do this. Not everyone's led to do this. It was very much practiced in the pre 
Christ's scriptures before Christ uh, by Moses, Joshua, Solomon, King David, etc., etc., many others for many different things, including the dividing of the land. Now, the um, New Testament also has the early church that chose the apostle to take the place of Judas who betrayed the Lord. They cast lots. Powerful movements of revival like the Moravians that even chose their wives by the casting of lots. And so it says in Proverbs 16.33, the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And so I used two independent random applications to get the possibility of any chapter in the Bible twice so that those two chapters will bear witness with each other as to what God wants me to speak on. I only meditate on them for a half an hour, trusting then that God will cause me to speak. So I don't know what I'm going to speak right now, but I'm going to trust God that he has a message by his spirit to give to you as an individual and especially to the churches in the United States and in Canada, and of course also around the world for this particular time. As it says in Matthew 25, blessed is that servant whom when his Lord cometh shall find so doing. Doing what? Giving them their meat in due season. In other words, speaking in God's timing exactly what the people need to hear. And that is so greatly missing in the churches today. So I want to now go to the two chapters I received today by the casting of Lot, which is 1 Chronicles 10 and Judges 9. And there is a very common message and theme that is in these two chapters because both of these chapters are about those that became kings and as kings became very corrupt and self-seeking instead of serving the people. One is Abimelech and the other is King Saul. And I've written a few notes at the beginning as to, which was just put in by Mike, so it might not all be perfect in English, as to what I sensed God was wanting me to share from these two chapters. So in both of these chapters, you have kings that sought to keep their position of power and authority and wealth, but out of impure motives, and they sought to kill those who were a threat to them, continuing in their life of self-glory, authority, wealth, and pleasure. They didn't look at their position as something that they had as something to love the people, to be a service unto the people, and to represent the needs of the people. They became totally corrupt and self-seeking. So I want to read a little bit from both of these chapters to give you an understanding of what happened. Now, I think the first chapter I received was on Saul. And in this chapter, Saul had been, before this chapter, Saul had been pursuing King David and seeking to kill him because he was jealous of him and because he knew a lot of people wanted him to be the king in his place. And so he continued to pursue him instead of repenting and getting right with God before Samuel and recognizing that his motives were wrong. And so this is where Saul is killed by the Philistines because it's God's time to remove this corrupt leader. And God has an appointed time when he removes those oppressive tyrants that have sought their own position and glory. And there's lots of people in the world today that are very corrupt in high places that are self-seeking and are only seeking their own interests and have an agenda under others that is very self-seeking and evil. And so I want to um, point out just a little bit in First Chronicles 10 here in the battle. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and after his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and 
Malchizua, the sons of Saul, and the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was wounded of the archers. Then said Saul to his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. So Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise on the sword and died. So Saul died, and his three sons and all his house died together. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that chapter. We go to the end of this chapter when we read this. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against Yahweh, which means the ultimate source of reality, the I am that I am, basically. One that is separate and beyond creation and far greater. Even against the word of Yahweh, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. Now the other chapter, Judges chapter 9, is very interesting as well. And this is about Abimelech, and it's quite a long account. So I don't have any intention of reading everything, but explaining mostly what happened in this chapter. Gideon was powerfully used of God to bring deliverance to the nation of Israel. God chose him. He visited him with a very powerful angel that gave him specific instructions in order to deliver Israel from the oppressive regime that had conquered them, which I believe was probably Moab and Edom, if I remember right, which I believe is pretty accurate. And so he has all of these, you know, he, he destroyed, first of all, there was a lot of apostasy in the nation of Israel, and they were worshiping demonic entities that were sacrificing their children to, to um, demons. In other words, their children were being burned alive and so on. That was also happening in many other cultures around the world um, that were wicked and God used other nations to destroy them. Not only in Israel, we see this being repeated in many places throughout history. When a nation becomes corrupt, God uses other nations to conquer them and destroy them in his appointed time. And so Gideon is told to destroy the altar of Baal, this heathen god. And of course, all the people are upset. Who did this? Who destroyed this altar? And he says, I did. Basically, he comes out and he lets him know, why would you trust in this evil god when we're being oppressed like this? This god isn't helping you. Turn to the true god, Yahweh. And of course, then God, a whole host comes with him against the enemy and the Lord says this is way too many people and he reduces it to 300 out of thousands and thousands. God only wants to use 300 people against thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of an army. And it's an amazing story. That's, And so here we are in this chapter after Gideon's old and has gone and has passed away and his sons have taken his place. And so one of the servants of Bimelech of the maid of Gideon is, I guess, a pretty strong, influential man, and he rebels against Gideon and decides that he wants to be king instead of allowing, instead of honoring Gideon and his 70 sons. And so he slaughters all 70 sons of Gideon on, and then gathers other people that are related to him, um, his brothers and sisters and others and thousands of others of people, says, I will be king, and so he takes the kingship. But there was one out of those 70 that escaped that slaughter, whose name was Jotham. And so when Abimelech is being crowned as king, we have this account. And when they told it to Jotham, or Jotham is his name, pardon me, he went and stood on the top so they told Jotham that they're making Abimelech king in such and such a place in the house of Millo, 
So he comes there, and he went and stood in top of the mount of Gerzim, and lifted up his voice, and cried, and said unto them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem. These are the people that wanted Abimelech as king, and slew the sons of Gideon. That God may hearken unto you. He gives a parable. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them, and they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. But the olive tree said unto them, Should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And go to be promoted over the trees? And of course, the understanding behind this is that we don't become who we become as a leader unless it is to truly love and to serve. And should I leave what I was created for to be a king when God created me to love people this way? And he didn't create me to have all that attention as the king. I would never want to do that because my motive is love. I want to serve. I want to do what God created me to do that he gave me a gift to be a blessing to others with out of love. That's the understanding behind that parable. And he goes on and mentions different trees that have different gifts that say, no, I don't want to be king. And then we read down further on here. Then said all the trees unto the bramble, come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, if in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And then Jotham says this to Abimelech and all the people that are at the bottom of the mountain. Now, therefore, if ye have done truly and sincerely in that ye have made Abimelech king, and if ye have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done unto him according to the deserving of his hands, that's actually Gideon he's talking about there, for by the deserving of his hands, for my father fought for you and adventured his life far and delivered you out of the hand of Midian. And ye are risen up against my father's house this day and have slain his sons, threescore and ten persons, which is seventy, upon one stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his maidservant king, over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If ye then have dealt truly and sincerely with Jerubbabel or Gideon, and his house this day, then rejoice ye in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the men of Shechem, and the house of Millo, and let fire come out from the men of Shechem, and from the house of Millo, and devour Abimelech. And so three years went by, and in the third year there was contention that began to happen between the men of Shechem and Abimelech. And they ended up fighting each other to the point that they destroyed each other. And then Abimelech is destroying a lot of people in a massive slaughter. He destroys almost all the men of Shechem. But there's a tower and he comes up against the tower and a woman throws a millstone down and breaks his skull. And he asks, kill me because I don't want to be known that I was killed by a woman. That shows the ugliness and the pride in this corrupt, evil ruler's heart. So in both these chapters, we have God's judgment of coming upon those that are corrupt in high places. And I do believe what God is saying by his spirit to the body of Christ is that we are living in a time now when God is about to judge corruption in high places, both in the church and, and first in the church, but also in the governments of the world and the corrupt systems of the world. Judgments that will be evidently not from man, but from the hand of God itself in these last days. So be ready for the unexpected, because God is about to bring and stretch forth his hand upon the earth to shake the institutions of man and the governments of men that have become corrupt and self-serving and are not motivated out of love, nor know a relationship with the God that is the one true God that created them, the one true eternal God, Yahweh the Almighty's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, I want to point out 
that there's a general principle of leadership raised up of God with pure motives that does not seek power and authority coming out of the corrupted structure of those that do. And we see this pattern throughout history. You see men of God raised up by God that have been put through great trials to undo any ego that is left in them, such as Moses, who was raised up by the Egyptian pharaohs with great wealth, but knew that his people were being terribly oppressed. And so for the first 40 years, he's got all the wealth and the prestige of Egypt. And then, of course, they find out that he killed an Egyptian slave master, and so he flees. And for the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness, wondering what has happened. I thought God was going to use me to deliver my people. And, he, and then the burning bush appears 40 years later when he's 80 years old. And God appears to him to tell him to go back to Egypt. And of course, we know the account of all the plagues that came in Egypt through Moses and Aaron and how they crossed the Red Sea. And of course, you can look at the links on my website at ultimatemeaning.com where there's that flip book and see all the archaeological discoveries that are highly valid, where they discovered the Red Sea crossing and the chariots that are in the Red Sea when the Red Sea collapsed again over the Egyptian army and destroyed them all. And so Moses was 40 years in that prestigious place with Egypt, 40 years dying to self, coming to a place where he was in a deep relationship with God to the point that God appears to him and, and reveals himself to him and the last 40 years leading the children of Israel to take over the promised land. But this is true of many cases throughout history. We see in the history of Israel that at first leadership was raised up of God, truly having love in their hearts for the people of God, truly knowing supernatural power and manifestations through their lives. And then eventually people are seeking for position and authority and you have a corrupt hierarchy. The same happened in church history. You have eventually a hierarchy that's corrupt taking over the church. Then you have the Catholic Church, which persecutes the remnant within it. And of course you have books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, a very thick book, very small print of the terrible tortures of thousands and thousands of Christians being tortured in many terrible ways, such as being burned at the stake or being torn apart or stretched apart, etc., etc., for their faith in Christ. And you have movements coming out of movements, but basically you have out of the corrupt mother structure birthing of pure and pure movements, which can be likened onto uh, seed when it grows and it grows and it grows and as it grows there's a shuck and eventually that that shuck represents the corrupt structures and as it grows and grows there's a coming out and a coming out and eventually the shuck falls away and the corn is glowing in the sun and ready for its ultimate purpose and likewise god throughout history is birthing a remnant that comes out of the corruption over and over again. But as history comes to a close, God's ultimate purpose is going to be fulfilled, which is the fulfillment of John 17, that he will have a people throughout the earth in Christian communities, small and great, in many towns and cities, that has come under the fullness of the headship of Jesus Christ. And so the corn is left glowing in the sun. And as it describes in Romans chapter 8, that in the last end of time, there will be the manifestations of the children of God or the sons and daughters of God, if you will. And it will cause the liberation of the whole creation from corruption and from death when Christ returns to rule over his corporate bride in these Christian communities. And I have written a book, which you can get on Amazon, called Godheadship and Body Invasion. And this book, and it might not show up properly uh, with a chroma key background, but 
this book shows everything that you can do in your assembly to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from fully inhabiting your local assembly so that his glory and his power comes down and as it were it's like a hand fitting into a glove and once that hand fills that glove that glove becomes very very powerful and when we come into a deep unity with Christ out of love for God and out of love for one another the glory of God and his power will be such that when we pray together and agree for anything, God will answer in an amazing and powerful way. And we will see and be able to say, to this mountain be thou removed and cast into the sea. Whatever mountain of opposition that is, we will see the powerful, mighty works of signs and wonders that can make a way where there is no way, even as a way was made through the Red Sea. The miraculous, supernatural manifestation and power of God shaking the kingdoms of this world that are based on a principle of corruption so that that kingdom that will never be shaken will be established. For God will shake all things that are shakable that what is unshakable might remain. And it describes it in many ways in the word of God. It describes in Daniel the stone that is cut out of a mountain without hands that once it is cut out of the mountain, strikes the image which represents the nations of the world and shatters them. And that stone then fills the whole earth so that it becomes a great mountain. And so it is that when Christ returns, the glory of God will fill all the earth. And it's very clearly described in many scriptures in Isaiah and the book of Revelation in various places in the New Testament, like Matthew 24 that there comes that point. Yes, there's going to be a time when there's going to be a very antichrist, terrible, oppressive leader that will rule over the world with this new AI technology that we're all seeing come on the scene right now. It's amazing. Now you can have videos on the internet that look identical to what I look like here that you could not tell the difference and they can make them say whatever they want. And they can do that within two days. That new technology is now what I saw it. I saw the other day when they were showing all this, also a robot. It was amazing what that robot could do. It was walking like a human. It picked up heavy things. It did a flip in the air and jumped off something, flipped in the air and landed on its feet. It was doing all kinds. This is the hour we're living in. When they want to use technology to control us like a bunch of robots and give us a miserable existence, but God is the one that will liberate those that have been oppressed by terrible tyranny around the world. And it will come in these last days. But this principle that I am talking about is a principle that God wants to, first of all, undo in the body of Christ. The tendency even in us who have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is that we can easily begin to put identity in one another more than in our relationship with the Creator. When that happens, it tends in its extreme to be manifested as a cult, such as we saw years ago with Jonestown. But basically what happens is that people enter a denominative mindset. I was part of a movement, two movements in my 20s that were very powerful and dynamic and spread around the world very rapidly. They were very wonderful in many ways. One was the charismatic movement, and I was going to the main charismatic church that was in Vancouver at that time that was well-known around the world which was St. Margaret's with Pastor Birch. At the same time, I was part of a movement that came out of China from the work of Watchman Nee that had kind of gone off on a tangent. But they were wonderful people, certainly not a cult. They were seeking to restore what I'm talking about that will happen in the last days. They wanted to see a conquering pure bride church 
and a unity that was truly of God that would break the powers of darkness. But if we lack the genuine fear of God, we tend to fall prey to identity more in one another than in a relationship that is deep and intimate with God. It is very important to have a personal prayer life, to develop intimacy with God. And I don't have time because one of the teachings that I could go into great depth about is how God in the last days is going to restore in the body of Christ the genuine fear of God, which is so lacking. I have seen it very lacking in many assemblies that are charismatic and Pentecostal, as well as others. The genuine fear of God is important. It is rightly choosing to turn in our heart and reciprocate in our being who God is, first in the integrity of his love, or in other words, in the holiness of his love. That brings one to a place of great humility that drives one to a place of honesty and transparency before God. That we do not hide anything from him. If, we've, if God is revealing pride in our heart, we confess it and humble ourselves. We come with great reverence before him. There's great reverence in the fear of God. And when you really love someone, you don't treat them common. You treat them very, very precious. And out of that, only when we totally receive the holiness of God, instead of being unthankful over the consequences of suffering in our own lives, because God is very severe towards us, where there's corruption. Because he loves us enough to deal with that as believers. And of course, he's very severe. There's serious consequences of suffering in this world because of rebellion against God and the refusal to receive him who loved us so much as I described. And so people tend to form certain molds of worship or molds of emphasis on particular teachings. In this case, with the group I was with, who was part of Watchman Nee's work, that was known as the local church movement while I was still going to the charismatic church, was emphasizing teachings such as this, that we must lay on the altar our doctrines that we get really focused on. Just like Abraham had... They were saying, well, God puts us through things and we persevere and then we have a tremendous revelation of something and it's very precious to us. And it becomes a, a doctrine that we focus on a lot. But then God calls us to put it on the altar even as Isaac was put on the altar. And if we put it on the altar, then God can raise it up in its fullness. They were teaching this. But the very thing they were teaching, they did not see that they we're failing to do. They developed a form of worship. Very different than most churches. They had what was calling on the name of the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. They were very concerned that people shouldn't be religious in the sense of the sociological meaning of it, that you're being unreal, that you're just being hypocritical and practicing things. And so, oh, we won't... We can never say grace. That's too religious to say grace. Don't be so religious that you have to pray over your food. You know That's what they would say, some of them to me. You see what's happening there? They're developing their own mold. And then they had a certain way of calling on the name of the Lord and doing prayer reading. And so I would go along with it as long as the Spirit in me gave me peace to do it. But then the Spirit would say, stop now and don't do it while they're all doing it. Because I could tell the Spirit was beginning to be quenched in some way. I just knew. But at the same time, I didn't want to be proud and critical. So I'd go along as much as I could until I would sense the Spirit was saying, no, don't conform to them. And so there's a kind of in their, their group, there was a lot of liberty and freedom, and they were still very loving people and free and so on. But it was just, they couldn't get out of this mold of certain forms of worship 
And and it what it caused was everyone to be like a bunch of bricks that all looked the same. And it all came from their very strong identity and their leader, which they considered to be like the Apostle John, the apostle of this hour above all others, which at that time was Witness Lee, the co-worker of Watchman Nee. And so there was too much identity in the leadership too. The genuine fear of God does not negate individuality and uniqueness so that you all become like a bunch of bricks that look the same. Rather, there is deep unity with great liberty for individuality. And so when we meet together, yes, we strive to be of one heart and one mind, but not to the negation of who we really are in the way we express our love to God and one another. And so we do not seek to be this or to be that, but we seek to be sensitive to the moving of the Spirit within us as to what God, out of His Spirit, is leading us to do. A true integral relationship with God. Now that's a stronghold of denominationalism. But that tendency, God led me to another church years later. And again, there was a denominational mold. And if you didn't quite fit into their doctrine and agree with everything, they felt uneasy. They didn't feel like they could really receive you and love you fully. You were kind of distanced. We love you, but, you know, we're a little leery of you. We're a little uneasy about you. You're not fitting in. You see what I mean? That was the United Pentecostal Church. and the, God led me to be there, and there was great riches and wonderful things in that church that I greatly appreciate. I've been in churches where they think, oh man, I, I don't want to tell you. But it's a denominational mindset. And God is wanting his church to repent of these things and to return to the genuine fear of God. And I can see a gun overtime preaching. All of these principles of corruption, such as the denominative mindset, are the opposite of love that can only be the basis on an everlasting kingdom under the headship of Yahweh, the Almighty's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that is what God is calling for his people to do. And if we want to see God begin to shake the kingdoms of this world and to shake these corrupt tyrants and remove them because of their terrible oppression upon the people of God, then we need to first of all begin to judge yourselves and to repent and become his house of prayer and holiness. We need to repent of the gods of amusement. People spend hours watching sports instead of praying. This is an idol in the church for many. They put more energy and emotion in that than they do in seeking God in prayer. When you have a church service, why are you having a pre-service prayer meeting? Why isn't your church service a prayer meeting to start with? Forget about pre-service prayer meetings. God wants you to start on your faces in prayer as a body each time when you gather together. And don't have these meetings that start at 10 in the morning where older people can't get up on time. And they Why shouldn't people have time on Sunday or Saturday when you have your service? They have lots of time to prepare and be ready for a church service. And then have it at about one or two o'clock and spend five hours so you can really break through as a congregation in a powerful way instead of having a short service. Why do you limit the Lord? This book that I have, God Headship and Body Invasion, gives many suggestions in order to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. You can never go back to being the church the way you were in this hour when we're on the verge of possible nuclear exchange, there's so many terrible things taking place in the world. And this is the hour, and I don't need to tell you about them or I'll get in trouble from YouTube, which I did the other day. They canceled my YouTube video, so I'm being very careful what I say since I'm putting these videos up on YouTube. However, I can share the gospel here and get the emphasis on what is the key 
to turning your nation back to God and breaking the oppression of tyranny over your nation. This is the most important thing to do of all what I'm talking about, is for us to come together in each city and town and begin to seek God as churches and never go back in our local congregation to being the way we were. So please get that book. And I have another one that I've just published on Amazon called Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable. It's 367 pages in print form, and it's a six by nine, so it's not a small paperback. But you can get it in Kindle and so on on Amazon. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message.